You're listening to the Dublin Review podcast in association with Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland. I'm Angela Flannery. In this episode of the Dublin Review podcast, I'm talking to Rory Gleeson about an essay he wrote called The Chase, which appears in number 85, the winter 2021 issue of the Review. Rory Gleeson is from Dublin. He's a novelist, playwright and screenwriter. His debut novel, Rockadoon Shore, was published in 2017. His writing has appeared in the Irish Times, the Town Crier, Far Off Places magazine and Granta. He was the 2019 Burgess Writing Fellow at the University of Manchester and was a recipient of a literature bursary from the Arts Council of Ireland in 2020. His personal essay, The Chase, is the first piece he's written for the Dublin Review. It was published in number 85, the winter 2020 issue of the magazine. Rory, thank you for joining us on the Dublin Review podcast. Thanks very much for having me. So the piece you're going to read for the podcast, it's about your experience as a contestant on the British game show The Chase. And um, for people listening who might not be familiar with the show and the format, could you describe what it's about for us? Uh, OK, The Chase is the possibly the best game show of the 21st or 20th century, as far as I'm concerned. It's uh, the daytime game show. It's on 5pm every day. And it's basically, it's four contestants go up against very, very good quiz brains who are kind of dressed in the part of sort of vaudeville villains. And you basically, you answer general knowledge questions against them and try and answer more questions than they can. And in, in, in doing so, try to win um, a bucket load of cash. And it has a huge amount of money. Compared to most shows. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in Pointless, you can maybe get a few grand out of them, um, but they can go incredibly high in the chase. So they would offer you maybe a high offer if you want to take more risk and answer more questions. They can offer you sometimes 30 or 40 or 50 grand, or you can you can go for less um, if you wish to and, and answer fewer questions for maybe 500 quid or 600 quid. But the big thing is that whatever each individual contestant brings back to the team, they then split and they share it equally. So there's space there to possibly exploit that uh, mm. that format. Part of the appeal of it are the chasers themselves. You don't yeah. know when you go into the quiz who you're going to be up against. That's part of the big reveal. So yeah. could you talk to me a little bit about who the chasers are? The chasers, there's about six of them now. They added an Irish fella in, Dara the Menace Ennis, who's living, who's living out in the UK now. They have five or six of them regularly go on. So, and they each kind of have a very distinctive dress style and the kind of a personality. So there's Mark the Beast, Labette, he's very big and they just fat shame him a lot, which I can't say I'm a, I'm a big fan of. And then there's Anne the Governess, Hegarty, and then there's the, the Vixen and Paul the Cinnamon Sinner. And there's a bunch of them and they all sort of, they do a very sort of straight faced kind of half villain thing. They'll make fun of the contestants, the contestants will make fun of them. Brad will make fun of the chasers and then everyone will just sort of have a little bit of a lighthearted dig at each other. And it's all, you know, it's very clearly they're putting on kind of like a wrestling kind of persona, really, which is fun and light. And they, they know exactly kind of how to judge it in terms of the silliness of it versus and then just kind of going, OK, let's get down to answering questions, which mm-hmm. is the fun part. And you mentioned Brad there, Bradley Walsh, who mm. is the host. But talk to me a little bit about him, just for a setup here now for yeah. people who don't know what the programme's um, about. Well, he's just brilliant. I, 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 we are instructed when we go on to call him Brad. So now I call him Brad, which uh, oh. puts me on very good terms with him. I didn't. He, he does. A, he, he shakes the hand of every person who comes on, but not in a, not in a Paul Hollywood kind of way where mm-hmm. it's like he's bestowing this beautiful thing. He just shakes the hand of every, everyone that comes on. 
And when I went on there, they said, listen, COVID, you can't really shake his hand. So you're going to have to go without that. So he'll put his hand over his heart if you don't get through. And if you do get through, he'll kind of give you a little thumbs up. But he's just, he's really relaxed. He just gets it. He's like, he's a very, very natural um, presenter in, in, in the way that he's just, he's been doing it a long time. You can see he kind of likes being there and he's a total pro, but he also, he has a bit of fun with the contestants and he also, he kind of gets on their side as well. He wants them to win. He wants them to beat the chasers and he kind of, he is just genuine and sincere in, in how he's going about it. You kind, of, you kind of get the idea that he really likes his job and he likes being good at it as well. And he likes as well, he makes the odd, <laughs> very terrible joke and then looks directly into the camera and, you you know, he knows that you know that he knows that it's a bad joke, but he's totally okay with it. So he just, he really kind of, I, th- I think he's the secret to why the show is as popular as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you see other, they have uh, versions of The Chase um, in other countries and they're not as good because they don't have him. They have a, an American presenter, an Australian one, and they just don't, they can't quite do the same, the same job. So he makes it look very easy, but it is very hard. Yeah, yeah. So here's Rory Gleeson reading his personal essay, The Chase, which appeared in number 85 to the winter 2021 issue of the Dublin Review. Sometime after 6am on a Tuesday morning in December, I walked through the darkness to the train station nearest my home in North London, weighed down by several hangers of clothes, a dark blue suit jacket, five shirts and an iron pair of jeans. I also had a kit bag slung over my shoulder containing makeup, spare face masks, hand sanitizer, and a pair of black boots. In the blue gloom of the early morning, I heard yelping. Two foxes ran across the street in the mist. Late at night, in this part of the city, you can often hear foxes yowling and screaming or see them brushing past a window. One fox chased the other down the side street I was about to take. I turned the corner and was passing a parked car when I saw a flurry of movement underneath the front bumper. One fox had the other pinned to the ground, its neck between its jaws. The aggressor twisted and jerked its head this way and that. The other fox remained still, docile, allowing itself to be tossed about, perhaps waiting for its moment to escape. As I passed, there was another flurry. The fox on the bottom got free in the scramble and scurried across the road. The aggressor followed and they snarled and scuffled again on the other side of the street. The passive fox fled, pursued by the aggressor. I kept on walking to my train, knowing I'd just been handed a metaphor and thinking on how I could make it relevant to the task I was on my way to undertake. My mind jumped to a phrase my partner uses whenever she wants to explain the world as it is, not as it ought to be. Homo homini lupus, she says, far too often. Man is a wolf to man. The things you love come to you in different ways. The chase came to me after I left Toronto. My partner and I had moved to London after failing to extend our visas in Canada. It was the best place for her career and the London publisher had acquired the novel I'd been working on so it made sense for both of us. It's always hard setting up in a new city but there was something in particular worrying me before we got there. Prior to my novel coming out I was made aware I'd have to do some publicity for it, a prospect that caused me to quietly shit myself. You don't have to be good looking to succeed as a writer, I knew that, but it really doesn't hurt. I've always struggled to keep a healthy weight. In my late teens and early twenties I moved around a lot, did a lot of backpacking, but as I focused more and more on writing, my life had become more sedentary. The prospect of doing interviews in London or Dublin, standing in front of rooms of people doing readings and getting photographed, all while carrying extra weight, 
sent a yawning panic into my heart. I didn't want to have to hide from audiences, to feel like I needed to suck in my stomach at readings or angle my body various ways when a flash went off. I didn't want to be thinking about having a double chin while I was pushing a hardback. Early on in my life in Canada, I damaged the metatarsals in my feet running on a bockety old treadmill. After several consultations, a sports doctor told me to try not to walk and hope the pain would go away. The injury left me limping early in the morning, unable to climb a set of stairs without gripping the edge of the banister and walking on the sides of my feet. I couldn't break into a run without first calculating the distance to be covered and how much it would cost in immediate and later pain. Any invitation I received to anything vaguely physical had to be carefully considered. I was moving around less than I would have normally been, and this, along with my tendency to accept fries on the side of every meal I ate, meant I put more weight on. After a while, it wasn't just about my ability to move. I started feeling older, less capable. The extra weight was changing how I thought about myself. Even if there was some physical activity I could do, there was always a little voice in the back of my head that said, but imagine how you'd look doing that. Having a book out though, this was serious. I put years into it, and I'd be fucked if my love of chicken fillet rolls was going to damage its chances of success. In the months before the book was released, I made a sustained effort to eat cleaner and increase my fitness. There was a lot of salad and not a lot of fun. I got orthotics and went consistently to a student chiropractor. Slowly, it became less painful to move about, though never quite painless. By the time the book came out, I was about two stone lighter. I looked better and I was more confident and at ease with it myself. The effects on the rest of my life were also huge. Without even thinking about it much, I found myself on climbing walls and impromptu hikes. I started travelling more. I took Italian classes, hopped on trains last minute, learned to box. I'd never thought I'd actually be in a position to put on a pair of gloves and go into a ring, kidney punching other lads, but there I was, pinned on the ropes, getting my face mushed in by a guy in a singlet. All of this, this activity and belief in myself, my right to use and enjoy my body, just kept adding up. Why not? I started thinking. Why not do the five-a-side? Why not take some Muay Thai classes? The expansion of these possibilities came with a strange sense of regret. There had been a period in my life, not long before, when I would not have countenance letting my girlfriend take silly pictures of me showering luxuriously under a Cuban waterfall. I was filled with a sense of loss for what I'd missed out on, what I'd denied myself. How quickly I'd limited my own opportunities out of vanity or ego or shame. It felt like such a waste. Once we moved to London, the emphasis went from losing weight to keeping it off. Going to the gym near my flat, I'd do an hour of cardio on the elliptical machines. They had tiny TV screens in the control panels you could plug your headphones into. And at 5pm, every day, Monday to Friday, no matter what, ITV aired a quiz show called The Chase. It was a great format for drawn out exercise, perfect for extended bouts of sweating. An hour-long show broken into digestible chunks that you could use to mark and carve up your workout. The chase resembles other game shows in that it is fundamentally about the contestant's ability to answer general knowledge questions under time pressure. What makes the chase distinctive is that each contestant ends up matched against one of the programme's small panel of quiz savants known as chasers, each in characteristic costume and with a particular brand of patter. This Mark the Beast, Labette, and the governess Hegarty, Paul, the Sinnerman, Sinna, Contestants, four per four per programme, operate both individually and collectively and they are offered what amounts to a choice between a bigger prize pot or better odds of progressing to the final chase. These wrinkles add a level of strategic gamesmanship that Pointless and other quiz shows can't match. 
And the money stakes go surprisingly high for a daily game show, with contestants sometimes competing for a share of at least 30 or 40 grand. And presiding over everything is Bradley Walsh, a former footballer and Coronation Street star. Bradley is a natural, a master of tone. He wisecracks, makes dad jokes, smiles knowingly at the camera. He is unashamedly unintellectual without being anti-intellectual. With contestants, he calms the nervous and gently ribs the overconfident. He is at ease and charming with his female guests, giving them the odd nudge or wink, but never getting overly familiar or putting his arm around them in that creepy old game show presenter kind of way. If there's a joke on someone, he makes sure it's on him or on a chaser, never the contestant. The chase now has Australian and US formats, and the chasers have branched out and found further fortune for themselves in the entertainment world. The Vixen was on The X Factor, The Dark Destroyer was on Countdown, The Governess on Amos Celebrity. The Cinnerman has a new chat show. They start together in a new spin-off called Beat the Chasers. You can tune in to The Chasers Road Trip on ITV at 9pm. Bradley Walsh had two hit albums and a recurring role in Doctor Who and is rumoured to be the subject of an ongoing bidding war between ITV and the BBC. Watching it on my little elliptical screen in the gym, I got hooked on it. Soon, my entire week of exercise was planned around getting in that sacred hour of sweating buckets and answering along to the master of Quiz TV. At the end of every programme, Bradley faces the camera and addresses the audience directly. Think you can beat a chaser? Come have a go if you think you're clever enough. One evening in mid-autumn, slathered in sweat and feeling particularly good about myself, I googled the chase. I browsed the application form for potential contestants. I looked down at my body and thought, why the fuck not? It's October 2019 and I've been invited to audition for the chase. In the ITV offices in central London, 15 potential contestants have assembled on the third floor, sitting in a wide circle, guest key cards printed. The reception area is encased in shiny glass, a door in the corner leading to the wider offices. By the time I get there, all the individual seats are taken. If I want to sit, it will have to be beside another person on a love seat. I wonder if it's a test, if some sort of personality surveillance is being conducted. I check the upper corners of the room for hidden cameras. Maybe there's a guy next door looking at a monitor, watching me, saying, he's going to sit beside the dentist. I know it. I lean against the wall. Some of the contestants are chatting to their neighbours, learning each other's names. They're talking a touch too loudly, enunciating perhaps a little too much. They also suspect that they're being watched, that there are producers hidden somewhere with notepads, rating personality, bounciness, banter. The only other casting session I've ever been to was in a large house in South Dublin. I was a 13-year-old in a room full of 11-year-olds practising lines to audition for the Artemis Fowl movie, a movie that, as it turned out, would not be made and released until many, many years later. I sat and waited for my name to be called. The others all had impossibly chirpy voices. And just after I arrived, an exceptionally well-dressed woman swooped into the room, all perfume and scarf, towing a neatly pressed boy in her slipstream. I'm so sorry I'm late, she said to the casting lady. Arthur just came from singing for the president. I remember not liking the feel of that room. The desperation, the competitiveness, the simmering imperative to draw attention to yourself. When I was a little older, my dad, a professional actor himself, advised me against pursuing a career in the performing arts, saying that it wasn't a matter of talent, but of my own particular attachment to ideas of justice. He worried that the realities of the industry, the sheer unfairness of it, would grind my soul down, crush my spirit, or turn me bitter. 
And now here I am, auditioning for the cutthroat world of TV game shows. I'd like to go up against Mark, an Eames chair lady says to her love seat neighbour. He's a good player, strong quizzer. Hmm, says her neighbour, enunciating. I think I would face the Sinnerman. I love his suits and he's a bit of a laugh. He's a strong player though. Yeah, but I think I could take him. A man in a suit is talking. He's an important business guy, don't you know? Lots of work to do. A man in a tight jumper is squaring his shoulders. A woman opens out the glass door from the offices, leaning half her body into the room. Hi guys, if you can all just come through with me. We imprint on her, following in a shuffling line as she guides us through the office, all of us rubbernecking, searching for clues, advantage, words written on whiteboards, clipboards gone astray. She leads us into a corner room, the walls lined with chairs facing a man sitting at a desk, a tripod holding a small camera beside him. Hi guys, he says, take a seat. As we enter, people push forward, trying to get into the guy's eyeline. We're given name tags, forms to sign. Everyone is looking at the camera on his tripod. Once the admin is done, the guy gives us a rundown of what's to come. People focus on his eyes. I focus on his eyes. He tells us that in a bit we're going to be brought into the other room. We'll play a few games, warm the vocal cords up. Then we'll get a chance to introduce ourselves, to talk a little bit about our hobbies. Then we'll play a few rounds of a quiz game and that'll be it. After you do the quiz, the other producer adds, and we switch our laser eyes to her. The production team will have a little chat about the group in private. Some of you will be invited to enter the contestant pool for the programme and unfortunately some of you won't. It's very competitive, so it's a massive achievement to even get this far. I would just ask that if you aren't chosen today, you please don't try to contact us or ask us why. So... Please don't contact us. And most importantly, enjoy yourselves. As they go through more checklists and procedures individually, taking profile pictures, the woman beside me, a bit spooked, asks very clearly, So what do you do for a living? I'm an author, I say. Oh, an author? Have you been published? I had a book come out a few years ago. She repeats the name of the book clearly and loudly and writes it down in her notebook. Then she looks at me and I know I'm to reciprocate. So what do you do for a living, I ask? Competition is a tricky concept for writers. Older writers frequently comment that the old resentment-thick literary rivalries seem to have disappeared. In public, a network of outward support and goodwill generally prevails among writers, or is at least encouraged. It's seen as a duty to help and support fellow artists. You can want desperately to succeed, but you don't need to wish others to fail. Still, if we're being honest here, writing is so indivisible from your sense of self that when someone rejects your work, it feels like they're rejecting you, your entire personality. In these moments, the success of other writers can sting. It feels as though there's a finite amount of success out there and they just pinch some of yours. When I was in writing programmes in my 20s, other writers would rush into the room and announce they'd secured an agent, been shortlisted for a competition, got some really good feedback. They'd bounce happily in their chairs as I'd offer heartfelt congratulations, praise them, all while thinking, well, fuck you. This competitive part of myself is responsible for my ambition and drive to make new things, while also being an absolutely awful character trait, and so it's not one that I try to indulge past its usefulness. Writers are not in competition with each other, I tell myself. The only person you are in competition with is yourself. 
Someday I might actually come to believe this. Before my partner and I left Toronto, I was put in touch with an older writer who offered to talk to me about what to expect at a publication, how it might go and what to watch out for. One of the big things he told me is competition in-house. You think you're all on the same team, that the publisher gives every book equal time and emphasis. Untrue. It is Darwinian, he said. The first thing to do was to get in to meet everyone, all the way up to the boss's boss. Shake hands, be personable. Their excitement about you will translate into excitement for the book. Genuine enthusiasm about you and your work radiates out from the publishers to booksellers, floor staff, journalists and the public. None of these things, he advised, could be thought about while writing the book. But once that part was over, into the shark tank you went. The man who was advising me was a great writer, adored by readers and writers alike. He wasn't some hack telling me I needed to pimp myself out. He was telling me that making art and selling it are two very different things. My book came out. I did what I could to promote it. I shook hands and answered questions and made myself exceptionally available to anybody who needed a moment. The novel did well initially, but quickly enough it dropped off shelves, off charts. I was happy with the book, but I was left thinking what more I could have done. In the audition room, a line of producers, runners and casting agents sit behind the table, all of them young with beautiful skin and snug jumpers. Some of us on this side of the table don't understand the purpose of the audition. More than 200 episodes of The Chase are made each year, which means there are 800 contestants to recruit. The casting agents are not looking for excellence. They're looking for content. Safe, but just little unusual. Something for Bradley to work with, to make smile-worthy TV. When I first thought to apply, I studied the application form with one purpose, to work out what they wanted and give it to them. They do not want complication or confusion. They don't want sob stories or actual reasons for needing the money. If I want some money, I would use it to pay my rent so I could continue writing, but they don't want to hear that. They want fun and they want simple and they want cute. It can't be a lie, just the best version of the truth. Well, I'm in the room now and I'm ready to play the game. I've got my posture aloof and my demeanour chatty and from here I'll become everything they want and everything they didn't know they wanted. I will use the winnings to fund language classes and driving lessons so I can take a motorbike from the very top of Italy to the bottom. For fun I go boxing with young fellas in Archway and play bingo with old ladies in Camden. I'm not a writer or a novelist or a playwright. I'm an author, which is a job for an old man, but I am young. I am fun, sincere, open. I am so very, very Irish. How are you? they ask. I'm grand, I say, stretching it out. How are you? They laugh and I'm floating on approval, feeling the blood boiling in the veins of all those behind me, wishing they had red hair, that they had a Dublin accent, an unusual career. Little Arthur is about to sing for the president. Afterwards, they send us back into the chair-lined room with the tripod so that they can deliberate. People chat again, though more quietly this time. Some are concerned about their performance in the quiz, how they missed that Spandau Ballet answer. Others are concerned that their personalities may not have achieved the desired traction. One of the organisers enters the room with a pile of forms and takes the centre of the floor. Now just a reminder, she says, if you're not named, please don't contact us. There is no, and the winner is. She reads the name in quick succession. There's just enough time to experience horrendous spikes of hope mixed with plunging despair before I hear my name called. I try not to break into a giant smile in front of the others. And that's it, she says. 
If we called your name, stay here. The rest, thank you very much and we hope we'll apply again. The room empties until it's just us future contestants left. The woman from the programme tells us we're being entered into a contestant pool, that it could take months, even years, for our names to be called. We don't believe her. We are the chosen. It's another year before I hear from them. They call towards the end of 2020 and ask can I make a shooting date after the lockdown is eased in December. Of course I can. In the three weeks leading up to the show, they contact me at least 15 more times. They email forms, releases, contracts, liability waivers, checklists, routines, dress codes and COVID regulations. These documents need to be signed and dated and countersigned. They call to go over my background info, my dietary, mobility and health needs. They ask me to talk about my career, my hobbies. Another guy calls and asks about my hobbies, my career. They ask that I bring five wardrobe choices. Dress smart, they say, like you're going to a dinner party. I get used to the phone calls. I answer blocked numbers and when they ask, how are you, I say, Grant, how are you? I'm in my brother's car, having just had a COVID test. My eyes are running and my nose is stuffy from the cotton swab. I get a call from a man who does background checks. He says that, as both me and Brad are with the same talent agency, can I confirm we've never actually met in person? Is there any sort of prior relationship there? There is not. Then, haltingly, a little unwillingly, he pushes. I see you're from quite a well-known family, he says. Yeah, I say, my heart falling. He wonders if it's okay to include the existence of my acting relatives, my father and brothers in my biography. He's had a background Google of me and noticed I left it off the form. It wouldn't be a problem to chat a little bit about that, would it? And I'm proud of my family. I've tried not to play off their fame or use it directly to my own advantage, though I know that because of them, I've received far more attention than would be normal for a person in my position. Usually, my attitude is this, I'm not going to bring it up, but if you want to, fair enough. While promoting my book, I took countless questions about my family, all tastefully positioned towards the end of an interview, and I engaged with them openly and without much reservation. I understood the curiosity. I took interviews that I knew were partly motivated by a desire to learn more about my family. To accept those interviews and the opportunities they afforded and then refuse to talk about my family would have been hypocritical. I mean, it's quite unusual, isn't it? The researcher says. And I can see his thinking. Brad would have a great time with it. It would harm no one and would probably just add to the general vibe. I've never had a problem addressing it before. It's not like I'd be going over some sacred line not previously crossed. I've already completely sold out in order to get on the programme. I've cosied up the tone of the thing, given them corny one-liners, bantered about the colour of the cinnamon's suits, delivered panto lines. But I've not played the family card. And why not allow it now? There is no right or wrong, only outcome. Listen, I say to the guy, a little desperate. I kind of wanted to just go on the chase. Nothing else. I haven't thought this response through. It's instinctive. I'm doing the chase for the pure joy of the thing. And I'll be fucked if the one-liner I've been crafting for months about Dara the Menace Ennis is going to be cut for a time so I can be shown squirming while Brad goes, Wait, your pop is Mad-Eye Moody. So I asked the researcher if we can skip that bit. Sure, he says, disappointed. I'll leave it off the briefing notes. Just on a personal note, though, I love your dad. I love him too, I say. I take several more phone calls. They arrange a train ticket, a taxi to take me from the train. See you then, they say. And I start to think on the way I'll look, how the camera adds weight, how the lights can make your face look sweaty or sticky or red or puffed up, how it might 
be easier just to bow out. And I immediately start to do more push-ups. Walking to the train station the morning of the shoot, I feel good in myself. It's been more than two years since my application, over a year since the audition. While waiting, I checked back into my contestant profile more than a few times, but I never once tried to contact them. In the meantime, I put weight on and took it back off, though I never went back to how heavy I'd been. I had some writing that went well, and some went that horrifically wrong. Years of work rejected. I felt utterly fucking lost. Other writers put out exceptional work which I read and loved, and I wondered how I could ever compete with them. It hurts, that feeling that no one gives a shit about your work. But you know what doesn't hurt? Going on the chase with Bradley Walsh. So now, the foxes are attacking each other, clawing and biting and fighting over territory, or mates, or food, or whatever else. All that's important is that one needs to win. I practice my intro, and confirm and reconfirm my strategy. No matter what, I will maximise my chance of getting into the final chase. I will bring my tiny sliver of money back to the team, then take an equal share of whatever much larger sum they risk their place to earn. It's a cynical approach, but it's a game show, and man is a wolf to man. And that was Rory Gleeson reading his essay, The Chase, from the winter 2021 issue of the Dublin Review. Wow, it really took me by surprise at the end of this that you took the lower offer. Was that (laughs) going to be your strategy right from the beginning? Were you just not going to be a team player or did it just occur to you while you were standing there? I've argued with numerous people about my behaviour on that programme. And I know I've disappointed many of my friends and family. (laughs) 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 But I knew I was going to be under horrendous pressure when I went in and that when you're standing in front of Brad, God help him, uh, and all the other contestants, because they just want you to go for the higher offer all the Mm. time because it makes for better TV. You know, it's the the risks are higher, the rewards are higher. So that's what they want you to do. But ultimately, you're going home uh, either with money or without it. So um, I'm going to relate this back uh, to a lot of time spent in... um, Psychology, I did a degree in psychology and we spent a lot of time looking at various aspects of uh, rational or irrational behaviours with regards to money and heuristics and all this kind of stuff. And it was always like people don't really fully estimate properly their chances of risk and, uh, and money. So I was just like, a very good chance at a small amount of money is a lot better than a very, very small chance at a, la- at a large amount of money. So ultimately, most people say like, I'm only going to be here once in my life, so I'm going to go for I'm going to go for um, the higher offer, and then they almost all the time get knocked out. So I just thought, you know, if I make four or five grand here, um, that'll pay my rent for a good long time. So that's way better. So I'll just go for that. The problem was, of course, that um, I went first, <laughs> which I didn't, <laughs> which I didn't, uh, I didn't think about going having gone first with the, the standard that would set for the rest of the players when I went on and how good the rest of the players would be. And it turned out that the rest of the players when they went on the chase didn't didn't do very well. So we all just went for the lower offer. <laughs> so instead of sharing in a larger, instead of, you know, getting through and, and stealing other people's money, we all just got a, a horrendously low offer and took it. Yeah. Um, I found that interesting editorially that you didn't get into that, that you Mm. didn't, um, you know, I had to go onto Google and look up because I was like, well, I wonder what the others did, you know. But it is interesting that once one person sort of doesn't display loyalty to the team that they start, you know, jumping off 
the boat one yeah. by one. They don't. They have how, how many lupus? It yeah. just you know. I mean, I I I think it. I shattered the idea of that we were all a team, <laughs> even though we weren't a team to begin with. You're never mm. a team going in, but. Yeah, it, it, it was it was it was funny how quickly um, people just view a, a small d- uh, display of um, self-centered activity can can trigger self-centered activity by mm-hmm. many other people. But also, yeah, it was it was an interesting it was an interesting one. I, what I what I enjoyed most about the experience was the next day reading uh, a bunch of pre-prepared newspaper headlines saying that how Bradley Walsh was was disgusted by my cowardly behaviour. <laughs> Uh, which he wasn't, he doesn't care. Um, but uh, I, I was particularly happy with those things. I also got a lot of abuse online, including a, a man who accused me, saying I was the reason we lost the six counties. Was, was Well, I was going to say, <laughs> I heard the uh, So sorry for that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was. I didn't get into it in, in the essay just because um, it wasn't really about why I applied. Mm. I, I think, you know, I, I, I'm perhaps I'll write more about what actually happened when you go in there because it was just very, very fun. But I kind of, in terms of what the essay was about and what it was trying to say and um, what it was talking about, it kind of felt like getting there and getting on the thing was was kind of, was the journey um, in it. And that afterwards was it was a, a different thing entirely. Um, so I, I, kind of, I, I didn't want to go into it, yeah. Yeah, much as I was curious about, oh, what questions did he get and which ones did he get right and which ones did he get wrong? That really isn't the point of it. I mean, I you use the chase as a kind of entry point into several different themes. And um, quite early on, you know, you express a deep discomfort with seeing yourself on screen with performance and you know, I mean, I don't know you at all, but I thought, oh, here's somebody who's from, you know, a performative family, but who prefers to stay in the background. Um, but yet you're putting yourself out there on television. And I just kind of wondered about the psychology of that, you know, that you you talk very honestly about having sort of a low mm. self-image at that point. Yeah, you know? I mean, oh, I think that's kind of in the end going on. It was a sort of expression of a sort of a growing comfort with myself and how I appeared. And, you know, I, I don't especially... Once I, I had to go off and I lost a bit of weight because I was worried about being in the public eye and not feeling comfortable with myself. So I, I, I didn't want it to make it about like, oh, you know, if you're worried about your self-image, you should just lose loads of weight mm. and then you'll be comfortable with it again. I think just generally as I got on, um, I, as I got on in my life with, I lost a bit of weight and just kind of just got more comfortable with myself generally and not caring so much how how much I you know, how how I looked and how just I, I you know I, I used to when I was growing up and I had a bit of weight on me I I was always looking at fellas who could be like the happy fat guy or whatever or these guys who would go like and they wouldn't care about what anybody thought about them and they would you know whip their shirt off and jump in the sea and they do all these kind of things and they always looked way happier and I always just sort of whether that you know whether that's performative or whether that's put on or not and I always sort of wished I could be one of those guys but I just wasn't into it. And I always sort of half knew, I, I always knew I was, I was limiting my own experiences and, and really cut my own life short. And, and the way it wasn't doing that, it was how I felt about it. So going on the chase and, and like having to do publicity and stuff for the book is something that you accept and you look forward to it a little bit because everybody likes talking about themselves to a certain extent and everyone likes the attention. But it made me very, very worried because I wasn't totally comfortable with myself and how I looked and all that kind of stuff. And going from there to kind of voluntarily going on to a game show just f- just for the joy of it and for the love of it and putting yourself on TV when it wasn't necessary 
it kind of was a greater end point for that between kind of doing something because you have to and then doing something because you want to. So that that for me was just sort of about that little bit of a journey of kind of growing to just sort of accept yourself a little bit more and then also just kind of learning to enjoy life a little bit more and not limiting yourself because ultimately that's that's what you end up doing more than other people do. I was interested to um, read your dad's advice to stay away from the performing arts because you had such a strong sense of justice or such an intolerance for injustice. Um, And it just occurred to me that, okay, right, so, you you know, you've become a writer and that is, again, you know, one of those kind of you think is going to be behind the scenes. But actually being a writer, you really you're putting yourself out there and it is Mm. as performative and as competitive. And you go into that in this. I mean, was that something that you were prepared for when you started writing? No, I mean, it's sort of like that kind of came from my dad. You know, I went in like there was a casting session I'd been to and I was complaining. I was complaining about that with him of like, oh, people are just, you know, they're jumping around and they're looking for attention and they're shouting. They're going, look at me, you know, and, you know, 13. So and even then I was got, got a bit older. It was like, it was like awful teenager where I was just like oh everyone's being a hypocrite and everyone's just looking for attention and you know all that kind of stuff and why is it's not fair that you know if I go into a room and start dancing around beforehand someone will reward that of you know in in a strange way or if I go up and I start trying to make friends with everybody and start to like shake hands and do all that kind of stuff and it's nothing about the work it's nothing about the, the audition or it's nothing about what you're there to do and I just like and he was just like, you're going to have to get used to that. Like that, that's just that's just something that it is an unavoidable part of life. And if you let this stuff get to you, it's a short road. And he knows a lot of people. And my brothers know a lot of people. And I, I know a lot of people who have become very, very bitter about what they feel is, is a rigged system or a system that rewards bad behavior. But for better or worse, that is sort of the system how it is. And you either have to engage with that a little bit and find your own way around it, of, of engaging with it or not. For the writing thing, you know, I, 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 you know, dad was always too nice to say it, but I also should never have tried to become an actor because I was terrible at acting. So, like, <laughs> you know, well. that I had absolutely no instinct for it whatsoever. Um, and so I, I didn't like it even, you know, I did one or two. I did like, I tried to do a school play or whatever. And it was just like, I didn't like being on stage. I didn't, you know, it was just like, I wanted everyone to tell me what a good job I've done afterwards. But like, yeah. you know, so the writing thing, I was always writing and, and, the writing thing is more fair, I would say. It is unfair and there are lots of cliques and there are lots of different ways around doing things and networking is this huge, huge part of it and knowing the language of how to talk to people and how to, how to get stuff commissioned, how to, get, how to get people to read your work, how to get into literary magazines, how to get you know your, your excerpts read by agents, all that stuff is... There's a huge amount of that, that that's networking and, and knowing how to talk to people and the right way of going about it. And, it. and it's not particularly fair. But if you love something, and this is sort of, again, kind of part of the essay is like, if you kind of love something, you kind of have to just go for it and just sort of accept that you're just going to have to get your hands a little bit dirty sometimes. But you just hope that the way you go about doing, going after the thing you love isn't going to sully how you feel about the thing itself. You know, and again, so it's just the idea that making some making something artistic and writing something is different from selling it. And you kind of have to keep those two things clear in your head while accepting that the the latter does exist. And how about the performative side of it? I mean, I really enjoyed you reading Mm. there and you are an animated reader and you, you know, um, you seem to enjoy it. Um, 
are you comfortable doing it or do you feel that that's like acting, reading your own um, I love reading stuff mm. and I love reading for people. I love, I love, I love being in front of an audience, you know, um, and I love reading my own work and I love reading other people's work as well. Um, I also like to have fun when I'm doing it and I think just generally that's something that's a little bit missed out on. Um, well, do you feel it? Kind of, do you feel an obligation to entertain when you're reading? And I'm wondering, do you have that kind of genetic predisposition to? I'm, you know, this. There's an audience there, so there they are. Entertain them. Do you have that sense? Uh, not an obligation. I always, I kind of, I used to go absolutely spare um, at basement readings and all the kind of all the reading stuff I used to do when I was coming up, sort of writing, and still and still do of people who go up with their little phone. <laughs> And they go, sorry, I wrote this on the way over here on the bus. I know it's terrible. Uh, you know, anyway, anyway, here we go. And then they, they kind of do it and then their screen locks and then they do the whole thing. And then they look around and like they're saying, well, you know, where's, where's the applause? And I always get really annoyed because it's like, if, if you're not taking this seriously, how can you expect me to? And um, you're here to kind of, you're here to sell your work and you're here to like, if you don't believe in it, how can I believe in it? And like... What I much prefer and what I try to do is is go up with the attitude of like, here's this thing. Um, I worked on it really, really hard. Um, I'm sharing it because I think there's something worthwhile in it. And I worked really, really hard in this and I'm going to I'm going to share it and, and hopefully you enjoy it. And that that for me is way more important. And it, but it's harder to do because it means you're being sincere and it means you're opening yourself up to criticism and you're showing how you really feel. And you're then, you know, again, it, it's you're giving yourself your giving yourself out to the world and if they don't respond to it well, it's absolutely devastating to your sense of self and to, you know, to how you feel. So it's a lot easier to go up and say, I wrote this on the bus over here, even though I didn't, um, and hide yourself from that. But I, so I do think, I think acting a lot of the time is you're giving yourself up to being hurt and to exposing nerves. And I think that good writing does that. It doesn't, I don't, I don't think you have to tell an audience everything about yourself I don't think you have to as a writer I don't think you should just say oh here are all my flaws there you are you know look, look at this terrible person I am look at all these terrible things that, that I've done I, 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 I do think there has to be a point in what you're revealing and hopefully it's that people recognise that in themselves or they recognise it in others and they can engage with it in a way that isn't just kind of leery you know mm. but uh, yeah I, I, I do feel that you should be honest and open and sincere in what you're doing um, and, and showing that side of it if, if it is necessary um, my, my folks occasionally you know they get a bit worried about what you tell people what you show people and it's never about the family or it's never about any of that it's sort of it's them kind of worrying that you're giving over too much to yourself but um, again writing is, writing is different than, than acting in, 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 that, in that regard It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you Rory about your work um, yeah and thanks for reading for us Thanks very much for having us on You've been listening to Rory Gleeson reading and discussing his personal essay, The Chase, which appeared in number 85, the winter 2021 issue of the magazine. The Dublin Review podcast is presented by Angela Flannery and produced in association with Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland. The Dublin Review is supported by the Arts Council of Ireland and is published quarterly. For more information, go to thedublinreview.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Dublin Review.